Hello and welcome to the October 2013 Respiratory Care Podcast. We welcome our listeners from all over the world, whether you are hearing this in English, Spanish, Mandarin, or Portuguese. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal, along with Sarah Moore. Sarah, let's get started with our Editor's Choice paper. Our Editor's Choice paper this month is The Impact of Hospital-Wide Use of a Tapered Cuff Endotracheal Tube on the Incidence of Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia by Boughton and colleagues. This two-period, investigator-initiated observational study was designed to assess the efficacy of a tapered cuff endotracheal tube to reduce the VAP rate. All intubated, mechanically ventilated patients over the age of 18 were included. During the baseline period, a standard barrel-shaped cuff endotracheal tube was used. All endotracheal tubes throughout the hospital were then replaced with a tapered cuff endotracheal tube, the taper guard. The primary outcome variable was the incidence of VAP per 1,000 ventilator days. There were 2,849 subjects, encompassing 15,250 ventilator days. The mean VAP rate was 3.29 per 1,000 ventilator days in the standard cuff group and 2.77 per 1,000 ventilator days in the tapered cuff group, which was not significantly different. While adherence to the VAP prevention bundle was high throughout the study, bundle adherence was significantly higher during the standard cuff period than during the tapered cuff period. The authors concluded that, in the setting of a VAP rate very near the average of ICUs in the United States, and where there was a high adherence to a VAP prevention bundle, the use of a tapered cuff endotracheal tube was not associated with a reduction in the VAP rate. Aspiration of colonized oropharyngeal secretions is a major factor in the pathogenesis of VAP. A tapered cuff endotracheal tube has been demonstrated to reduce aspiration around the cuff. But whether these properties are efficacious in reducing VAP is not known. In this study, the authors found that, in the setting of a VAP rate very near the average of ICUs in the United States, and where there was high adherence to a VAP prevention bundle, the use of a tapered cuff endotracheal tube was not associated with a reduction in the VAP rate. As Fernandez and Restrepo state in their editorial, each ICU should evaluate their VAP rate and VAP bundle adherence before considering more expensive technologies related to the endotracheal tube. Decreasing the adverse effects of endotracheal suctioning during mechanical ventilation by changing practice is by Maggiore et al. They studied the incidence and risk factors and evaluated the effect of suctioning practice guidelines. During a three-month period in 79 mechanically ventilated subjects, the authors recorded the adverse effects in 4,506 suctioning procedures. Then practice guidelines were implemented, and one year later, during another three-month period in 68 subjects, the authors recorded the adverse effects in 4,994 suctioning procedures 
procedures. In the first period, adverse effects occurred frequently. After guideline implementation, all complications both separately and together were reduced. The incidence of all complications together decreased from 60% to 43% of subjects and from 12% to 5% of procedures. PEEP greater than 5 centimeters of water was an independent risk factor for oxygen desaturation. Receiving more than 6 suctionings per day was a risk factor for desaturation and hemorrhagic secretions. The use of guidelines was independently associated with fewer complications. The authors concluded that the incidence of complications related to endotracheal suctioning can be reduced by the implementation of suctioning guidelines. Majuri et al. evaluated the impact of implementing guidelines consistent with the AARC clinical practice guidelines related to endotracheal suctioning during mechanical ventilation. They found that adverse effects of suctioning were reduced with the implementation of these guidelines. This has important clinical implications for anyone who performs this common procedure. As Timonopoulos appropriately points out in his editorial, further work is necessary to investigate controversial strategies such as suction catheter size, saline installation, and the use of open versus closed suction. Our next two papers relate to portable oxygen delivery devices. A comparative study of three portable oxygen concentrators during a six-minute walk test in patients with chronic lung disease is by LeBlanc et al. The purpose of this study was to compare the ability of three portable oxygen concentrators to maintain an SpO2 90% or higher during exercise in patients with chronic lung disease. 21 subjects with chronic lung disease and documented room air exertional SpO2 of 85% or lower performed four six-minute walk tests, a control walk using the subject's current oxygen system and prescribed exertional flow rate, and one walk with each of the three portable oxygen concentrators at their maximum pulse dose setting. SpO2 was significantly higher pre-walk and post-walk with the Eclipse 3 compared to the other portable oxygen concentrators. The subjects also walked further and maintained a mean SpO2 of 90% or higher with the Eclipse 3, which delivers the largest oxygen bolus. The subjects indicated that they preferred the Evergo's physical characteristics, but that the Eclipse 3 responded best to their breathing. The iGo was related less favorably than the Eclipse 3 or Evergo. The authors concluded that the Eclipse 3 was best at meeting the subject's clinical needs. POC users should be appropriately tested during all activities of daily living to ensure adequate oxygenation. The healthcare provider should provide information and help direct the subject toward the most clinically appropriate oxygen system while being mindful of the patient's preferences and lifestyle. Are oxygen-conserving devices effective for correcting exercise hypoxemia is by Marti and colleagues. In this study, the efficacy of two oxygen-conserving devices, a pulse-demand oxygen delivery system, and pendant reservoir cannula were evaluated in subjects with COPD and interstitial lung disease. A cross-sectional crossover study included 28 subjects with COPD and 31 subjects with interstitial lung disease. 
All had oxygen desaturation on a 6-minute walk test with an average SpO2 less than 88%. Each subject underwent three walk tests with demand oxygen delivery system, pendant reservoir cannula, and continuous oxygen flow by standard nasal cannula in random order. When compared to standard nasal cannula, the oxygen-conserving devices showed similar efficacy except a lower performance for the demand oxygen delivery system in the subjects with interstitial lung disease. The authors concluded that although these oxygen-conserving devices corrected exercise hypoxemia in most subjects with COPD and interstitial lung disease, correction was not achieved in about 20% of the subjects with severe COPD, regardless of the device, and in nearly 40% of the subjects with interstitial lung disease with the demand oxygen delivery system. The results of LeBlanc suggest that users of portable oxygen concentrators should be appropriately tested during all activities of daily living to ensure adequate oxygenation. Marty et al. found that, although these oxygen-conserving devices corrected exercise hypoxemia in most subjects with COPD and interstitial lung disease, correction was not achieved in about 20% of subjects with severe COPD, regardless of the device, and in nearly 40% of the subjects with interstitial lung disease with the pulse demand oxygen delivery system. In his editorial, Pruitt points out that the complexity of these devices calls for a knowledgeable and experienced clinician to assess and decide on which of these options should be used in a patient receiving long-term oxygen therapy. A guide to portable oxygen concentrators recently published by the AARC is a valuable tool for making decisions regarding long-term oxygen therapy and should be kept handy by anyone caring for patients receiving this therapy. Next, we have the paper, Emergency Department Management of Suspected Carbon Monoxide Poisoning, Role of Pulse CO Oximetry by Saban and colleagues. The authors assess the diagnostic value of non-invasive measurement of blood carboxyhemoglobin of the RAD57 pulse oximeter. They compared SPCO values from the RAD57 to standard laboratory blood carboxyhemoglobin measurement in emergency department patients with suspected carbon monoxide poisoning. SPCO was measured with the RAD57 simultaneously with blood sampling for laboratory blood gas analysis. Blood carboxyhemoglobin greater than 5% for non-smokers and greater than 10% for smokers were applied as the reference standard. The SPCO values ranged from 1% to 30%. The carboxyhemoglobin values ranged from 0% to 34%. The 95% limits of agreement between the carboxyhemoglobin and SPCO values were minus 6.7% and 6.3%. The optimal thresholds for detecting CO poisoning were SPCO of 6% and 9% for smokers and non-smokers, respectively. The authors concluded that SPCO measured with the RAD57 was not a substitute for standard blood carboxyhemoglobin measurement. However, non-invasive pulse CO oximetry could be useful as a first-line screening test enabling rapid detection and management of CO-poisoned patients in the emergency department.
emergency department management of suspected carbon monoxide poisoning with the use of a pulse oximeter that measures SPCO is evaluated in this study. The 95% limits of agreement for SPCO measurements compared to blood carboxyhemoglobin were rather large at minus 6.7% to 6.3%. The authors correctly conclude that SPCO is not a substitute for standard blood carboxyhemoglobin measurement. These results should cause pause when SPCO is used to screen for carbon monoxide poisoning. The paper, Pressures Delivered by Nasal High Flow Oxygen During All Phases of the Respiratory Cycle, is by Park and McGinnis. The purpose of this study was to measure and compare the airway pressure generated during different phases of the respiratory cycle in patients receiving nasal high flow oxygen at various gas flows. Patients scheduled for elective cardiac surgery were invited to participate. Nasopharyngeal pressure measurements were performed using nasal high flow with oxygen flows of 30, 40, and 50 liters per minute. All measurements were performed in random order, with the subject breathing with mouth closed. During nasal high flow, the mean nasopharyngeal airway pressures were 1, 2, and 3 at 30, 40, and 50 liters per minute, respectively. The authors concluded that the expiratory pressure during nasal high-flow oxygen therapy was higher than the mean pressure previously reported, and this may account in part for the disproportional clinical effects seen with nasal high-flow oxygen. Nasal high-flow oxygen therapy and CPAP are modes of non-invasive respiratory support used to improve respiratory function in multiple patient groups. Both therapies provide positive pressure, although this varies during the respiratory cycle. The mean nasopharyngeal airway pressures reported in this study are relatively low, and whether or not these pressures have clinical relevance is yet to be determined. However, these pressures might account in part for some of the clinical effects seen with high-flow nasal cannula. Outcome of Nicotine Replacement Therapy in Patients Admitted to ICU, a randomized controlled double-blind prospective pilot study, is by Pathok and colleagues. They studied whether nicotine replacement therapy in ICU patients affects the need for sedatives and analgesics, ventilator days, and ICU stay. In a 20-bed ICU, 40 subjects were randomized to either a 21mg nicotine patch or a placebo nicotine patch daily until either ICU discharge, transfer to medical floor, or 10 weeks in the ICU. There were 27 male and 13 female subjects. The mean age was 57 years in the intervention group and 53 years in the control group. The mean acute physical and chronic health evaluation 2 score was 14 in both groups. The mean ICU stay was 4.5 days in the intervention group and 7 days in the control group. The mean number of ventilator days was 2 in the intervention group and 3.5 in the control group. The number of days on sedation and analgesia were less in the intervention group than in the control group. The authors concluded that, although ICU stay and ventilator days decreased numerically in this pilot study, statistically there was no beneficial effect from nicotine replacement therapy.
The effect of nicotine withdrawal in smokers admitted to the ICU is not well understood, so the role of nicotine replacement therapy in those patients is controversial. In this study, ICU stay and ventilator days decreased with the use of nicotine replacement therapy, but the study was underpowered and the differences were not statistically significant. Unfortunately, this study does little to inform the use of nicotine replacement therapy in patients admitted to the ICU. Oxygen injection side effects of IO2 during non-invasive ventilation is by day at all. They investigated in vitro non-invasive ventilation parameters and their effects on FiO2, particularly the effect of the oxygen injection site. NIV was simulated with a test lung and mannequin setup. FiO2 was measured with four oxygen injection sites with three exhalation valve types, with two oxygen flows, and with four combinations of inspiratory and expiratory pressures. Oxygen flow, inspiratory and expiratory pressure, and exhalation valve types all affected FiO2. Remarkably, for a given oxygen flow, the oxygen injection site was the most important factor that affected FiO2. The oxygen injection site that was closest to the patient had the highest FiO2. The authors concluded that oxygen injection site had the greatest effect on FiO2 during NIV. Most portable bi-level positive airway pressure devices are not equipped with air oxygen blenders for precisely regulating oxygen concentrations and supplemental oxygen must be added to increase the FiO2. Very few studies have investigated the factors that affect FiO2, and their conclusions have been inconsistent. In this study, the authors found that the oxygen injection site closest to the patient, in other words, on the mask, had the higher FiO2. Next, we have the paper, Laboratory Test of a Visual Speedum Suctioning System by Liv et al., the authors evaluated a new visual sputum suctioning system in a laboratory setting. They used coagulant concentrations of 1.5% and 3% to simulate mucus and sputum. Conventional single lumen and triple lumen catheters were inserted separately into a beaker for sputum suctioning. A microimaging fiber was integrated into the triple lumen catheter to create the visual sputum suctioning system. The single lumen catheter and the visual sputum suctioning system were inserted separately into the mouth cavity, the nasal cavity, the tracheostomy tube, and the endotracheal tube of a human analog model for further comparisons. As the suction channel of the triple lumen catheter was reduced by 47%, the amount of simulant it suctioned was significantly less than that suctioned by the single lumen catheter. However, under real-time guidance, the visual sputum suctioning system suctioned more simulant than the conventional single lumen catheter in the human analog model. The authors concluded that sputum suctioning with the visual sputum suctioning system was feasible. Because of its real-time imaging guidance, the efficiency of the visual sputum suctioning system procedure was greater than that of the conventional single lumen catheter. Therefore, this system may provide a new platform for sputum suctioning. Conventional sputum suctioning is a routine clinical practice 
but complications may arise from blind manipulation of the catheter. These authors report that suctioning with a visual suctioning system is feasible and, because of its real-time imaging guidance, the efficacy of the procedure was greater than that of the conventional single-lumen catheter. This system may provide a new platform for sputum suctioning. As this was a bench study, we await reports of clinical effectiveness of this system. Relationship between spontaneous expiratory flow volume curve pattern and airflow obstruction in elderly COPD patients is by Nazoe and colleagues. They studied whether the spontaneous expiratory flow volume curve pattern reflects the degree of airflow obstruction in elderly COPD patients. In 34 subjects with a mean age of 80 years and stable COPD, and 12 age-matched healthy subjects, they measured FVC and recorded flow volume curves during quiet breathing. They studied the spontaneous expiratory flow volume curve patterns, spirometry results, breathing patterns, and demographics. The spontaneous expiratory flow volume curve concavity and convexity prediction accuracy was examined by calculating the receiver operating characteristic curves, cutoff values, area under the curve, sensitivity, and specificity. 14 subjects with COPD had a concave spontaneous expiratory flow volume curve. All the healthy subjects had a convex spontaneous expiratory flow volume curve. The COPD subjects who had concave spontaneous expiratory flow volume curves often had very severe airway obstruction. The FEV1% was the most powerful spontaneous expiratory flow volume curve concavity predictor and the highest sensitivity and specificity. The authors concluded that concavity of the spontaneous expiratory flow volume curve obtained during tidal breathing may be a useful test for determining the presence of very severe obstruction in elderly patients unable to perform a satisfactory FVC maneuver. Assessment of the degree of airflow obstruction is important for determining the treatment strategy in COPD patients. However, in some elderly COPD patients, measuring FVC is impossible because of cognitive dysfunction or severe dyspnea. In such patients, a simple test of airways obstruction requiring only a short run of tidal breathing would be useful. These authors found that concavity of the spontaneous expiratory flow volume curve obtained during tidal breathing may be a useful test for determining the presence of very severe obstruction in elderly patients unable to perform a satisfactory forced vital capacity maneuver. This month, we published four papers from the 28th Annual New Horizons Symposium. Science and Evidence, Separating Fact from Fiction. The Scientific Basis for Protocol-Directed Respiratory Care. Airway Clearance Therapy, Finding the Evidence. And Evidence for Oxygen Use in the Hospitalized Patient. Is More Really the Enemy of Good? We also publish a Clinical Practice Guideline on Blood Gas Analysis and Hemoximetry. Our case reports are on the topics of spontaneous pulmonary hernia and diabetic myonecrosis in a cystic fibrosis patient. Our teaching case is on the topic of pulmonary talcosis with intravenous drug abuse.
Finally, in this month's issue, you will find the scientific abstracts that will be presented at the AARC Congress in Anaheim. We are looking forward to seeing many of you there. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.